On opening day at Disneyland in 1955, Walt Disney delivered a simple 40-second speech to the first guests of the new park. He welcomed everyone to that happy place, saying he hoped it would be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Of course, anyone who's visited the park more than once knows that the work wasn't finished in 1955. Even still, they're always blocking stuff off. Even after a year of being closed from COVID, they still have stuff closed that they're working on. I don't even know how that's possible. In fact, Walt famously said, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. Now, since 1955, more than 700 million people have visited the happiest place on earth, and still the work goes on day after day. Now, so far in Genesis, we've read about all the things God created in this universe, energies and elements, the stellar heavens, our atmosphere, the oceans, the continents, birds and fish and animals. But all of that is simply a backdrop and set dressing for the final component of our cosmos, human beings. The last creative act is what we'll focus on tonight. And as we go through this text, the major point of it is just how special human beings really are. The way God made us, the reason why we were made, our function in this universe, all of it is revealed to be significant and distinguished and different in the mind of God in comparison to everything else in all the cosmos. That's the idea that comes across in these verses. And we'll see that humans would not only be a special uh, creation for God's attention and affection, but that we would also become special administrators of the rest of God's creation. When God formed man and woman from, uh, well, formed man from the dust of the earth and woman out of man, he wasn't only giving them an incredible, lavish gift to live in. It wasn't just a playground. God was also giving human beings a great responsibility and an appointment to carry on the work that the Almighty had begun. So let's take a look at our start beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. As always, please note the uni-plurality of this one true God. Let us make in our likeness, and yet God created in his own image. And so the Bible very consistently reveals that God is more than one in one. And as we go through the rest of the scripture, we understand that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, just one God who is triune. Now, while we're on the subject of the nature of God, we might as well discuss the issue of whether God is a man, or rather, is God male? Well, listen, God is spirit. Both Old and New Testaments explain that he is invisible. He has no body. Therefore, he is not male in the sense that we use the term. That is, until God the Son put on flesh that he might dwell with us. When he did so, he came as a man with a real physical masculine body. Now, God the Son, uh, he came in his incarnation as the God-man, a real body, really God, really man, in a way that we could never wrap our heads around. And then he was killed, he died, was buried, and is now resurrected in a glorified body. 
and he will remain the God-man forever. And uh, that is a mind blower we don't have time to think about tonight. But so in that sense, obviously, Jesus is male, right? But the issue doesn't simply stop at Jesus. Even before the incarnation, God chose to reveal himself as a father and the second person of the Trinity as the son, not a mother and a daughter. Jesus always uses masculine nouns and pronouns when referring to God the Father. Whenever God appeared to people in a pre-incarnate visit to earth, he did so in the form of a man. But what about where it says male and female were both made in the likeness and the image of God? So would, you know, people ask, well, is God both male and female? We need to not think about things that way uh, because God has no body. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so our bodies, right, that we have is not what is being referred to in Genesis when we're told that we are in God's image. God doesn't look like us. Jesus looks like us now in the sense that he has a human body. He's the God-man. And so it is certainly a little bit uh, theologically confusing on one level. But if our bodies are not the image of God, what is? That's a question that much has been written about for many, many centuries, but it comes down to unique attributes and unique assignments. The unique attributes are many, but they include things like our ability to think at a very high level. No animal looks up at the stars to ponder the meaning of life. We do. No fish has the capacity to love another like we do. No bird is able to think through abstract philosophy. We do. Man's ability to think and determine and contemplate and believe is a reflection, uh, it's a reflection of the mind of God that no other creature has. This is why in every movie, that every cartoon for kids, what do they do? do they, they make the, the animals like humans. They anthropomorphize them because human beings think and communicate and operate and interact on a completely different level than the animals do. We also uh, have lots and lots of other attributes, but let, let's think about it this way. The Bible never lumps human beings into the same category as animals, never. The Bible never says you're an animal and also a rhinoceros is an animal. Now, we are made of flesh. The Bible says one kind of flesh, and animals are made of another kind of flesh, according to the Bible. Now, we, on a scientific level, say it's all water, it's all carbon, it's all cells, those sorts of things. Yes, God used the physical elements of this universe to form the body out of the dust of the earth, right? It's not that God reached into a special magical pocket and said, I have a different element that I'm making human beings out of that is completely separate than all of the elements of the cosmos as we know it. But when God made human beings, he was making something different, something unique, something special. He was fashioning us in his image. And we'll see a little bit more of that process in our next study next time when Genesis 2 goes back over the creation of man, kind of zooms in on it. Here tonight in this passage, it's, it's a quick overview of day six and the creation of man. And then we get that zoom in. And so we'll be able to talk a little bit more about this. But the Bible never lumps human beings into the same category as the animals. This is very important. And this is a significant difference between 
biblical philosophy, biblical truth, biblical teaching as compared to humanistic philosophy, evolutionary philosophy, all of these other isms of the world who effectively say that you and I are either just like all the other animals, we just know how to use tools, or we all came from the same protozoa, that sort of thing. Uh, that leads to a lot of imp terrible implications. But God says, no, something different is happening with human beings, something different altogether. In kindness, in justice, in devising, in designing, in communicating, in loving, we are able to do what no creature on earth can do. These are significant differences. One commentator points out that the Bible reveals that God made humans a little lower than the angels, not a little higher than the beasts. And that's an important thing to think about. It, it really is different. You really are special when God looks down on, the, on planet Earth. Why did God do this? Partly because he wanted to make a creature on whom he could place special attention and affection but also because of the assignment he had for us. And so part of the image of God is not only our attributes, but also the assignment he gave us. We see it there in verse 26. It says, God made man in his image and likeness and then immediately extrapolates on that by talking about the assignment he was going to give this special creature. Human beings were to rule over all the earth and the creatures within. In every realm, land, sky, and sea, man would have dominion. What sort of rulers would they be? Well, when you consult Bible dictionaries, they will describe the term rule in these ways, to tread down, to subdue, to lead, manage, direct, or govern. We live on a pretty big planet, which makes this a pretty big job. How would these humans accomplish this job? They would do so as representatives of God himself. Since humans were made in God's likeness and image, they would be his special agents in charge of the rest of creation, made to rule the way God would rule if he were there in person. Before the fall, humans were to be the visible, visible corporeal representative of the invisible bodiless God. That's a great definition that one resource gives. That was the idea. God, who is, you know, is spirit, he said, I'm going to have a creature who's made in my image and likeness so that they could administrate this wonderful creation the way I would if I was there. And so they would become the visible corporeal representative of the invisible bodiless God. And because of that, God gave all authority and all ability that men and women would need to do this fantastic job. Now, before moving on, given the times in which we live, there is an issue that should be addressed here, I think. Genesis, as we've talked about before in our previous studies, Genesis is revealing reality to us. God is communicating to us those things that we need to know in his special revelation of who he is and what he's done and who we are and what's gonna happen, the things that we need to know about the meaning of life and the purpose of life and, and how to be godly and how to have, find a future in heaven, all of the things that God thinks we need to know, this is where he started. And here at the start, he's revealing reality and truth to us as he does all throughout his word. And here as he's revealing reality, it shows us the workings of God and his design, his specific design. It establishes truth for us. And what we find here written indelibly is that human beings are created by God as either male or female. That is not something that culture assigns later. It is not a social construct. 
Every man, every woman has been specifically crafted by God according to his design. For a human male to claim that he is female or vice versa is a detachment from reality. It simply is. Some people in our world today have a hard time with this reality. Our purpose, speaking from the Bible, is never to demean or belittle anyone, but simply to share the truth which has been revealed. For those that deal with what is known today as gender dysphoria, we have this to say. Your feelings may be real. Your struggle is probably very painful, but God has explained what is real and what is true. And, and, and in addition to that, he reveals that you have, were created by an all-loving God according to a set design for a purpose. And he knows you and he loves you and he has a specific design for your life. To reject that fact, including the fact of your, you know, being male or female is not only to depart from truth and reality, but it is also to flee away from this God who made you and loves you and only wants what's best for you. And so this is obviously a a big argument in our culture right now, a raging debate that people are very worked up about. God reveals very simply and very plainly what is true. And just because a person doesn't agree with the truth doesn't make it untrue. Our culture is saying that, well, whatever I feel is true, but that is the absolute antithesis of what truth is. And God has revealed not only his great love, not only his great power, but his specific design for humanity. Verse 28 says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. This is very similar to what God had said to the other creatures earlier in the chapter, but here it adds on the command to subdue the earth. And we see that that command is a blessing. He said, hey, this is how I'm blessing you. I'm gonna bless you with a command to do something, to have an assignment, to have a purpose. From the beginning, we're being shown that to obey God is the way to a happy, fulfilled life. Psalm 1 stuff, oh, how happy is the man who does what? not walk in his own way, not walk in the way of the wicked, but goes God's way. And to go God's way is to acknowledge that he is king and to not acknowledge that he is true and to acknowledge that he's in charge and he gets to decide and then to walk with him and obey him and go his way. That's the way to a happy, fulfilled, what the Bible calls blessed life. And we're also shown here that work is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing to be busy accomplishing good things according to God's will is a very good thing. Now, the word subdue has a pretty negative connotation to us usually. The term here might be described this way, harness the potential of the earth. God has given us so much in this earth with which we can innovate and utilize and enjoy and develop. We're to do so in ways that reflect God's character and nature. Meaning that humans shouldn't treat the world the way I treated my SimCity metropolis when I was in middle school. Oh man, I loved SimCity. We got a computer like at the end of maybe like eighth grade, ninth grade. And it had that first SimCity on there. And if you've played that, you know the joys of the first SimCity. And you spend all this time developing your city and you have to have a certain number of roads and certain number of power grids and all these different things. And you have all these meters on the side of, oh, your people are unhappy. They need more parks or there's too much crime. It's really fun, really great. And so I'd spend all this time building these cities so that I could then hit the drop down, the disaster drop down. 
And then I would send tornadoes and earthquakes and Godzilla would come through and destroy your town. And then you just watch as, as these terrible emergencies would destroy your town. That was why I built the town. Okay, that's not the way God wants us to rule over the earth or subdue. That's not what God's plan was for humanity to go out and wantonly destroy everything, right? Uh, that's not it at all. We don't need to uh, behave in that sort of way, nor should we. At the same time, we don't need to feel sheepish about using the resources God has generously supplied. He goes out of his way to talk about how, yeah, I, I have supplied this world, this creation for you, human beings, to use and cultivate and utilize and innovate and develop things and build things. God loves to build. God loves to design. He loves to create things. And he says, yeah, I, 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 I put oil in the earth for your use. I put gold in there for your use. I put wood in the ground for you. I mean, all of these things are not meant to just be, oh, we can't touch any of these things. We can't use any of these things. God says, I've given you this stuff for your food and for your enjoyment and for the development of the planet. And so our aim should always be to develop and cultivate rather than to destroy. Uh, but we don't need to feel sheepish about using resources God has generously supplied and doing so thankfully and doing so in a uh, responsible way. Now, a question that comes up sometimes is this, should I have kids in a world that is in so much trouble? Today, climate change alarmists are pressuring people to not have children because they argue there aren't enough resources to go around. It's kind of like Thanos' philosophy in the Avengers movies. By the way, if your philosophy lines up with Thanos, you probably want to pivot to a new philosophy. Just going to throw that out there for everybody. But one organization I, I was consulting called World Population Balance, that's not creepy at all, uh, they say that what we all really need to do is get the global population down to two or three billion. There's seven and a half or eight billion people on the planet right now. Uh, and they say, well, and we can have as many as two or three billion if every, all of you, if you survive the purge, I guess, if all of you... <laughs> you have to cut down your consumption of everything by 40%. So effectively, you have to have everything that you eat, everything that you waste, everything that everywhere that you go, all of your development, all that. You can have that. And then we only need to wipe out 60 or 75% of the global population. And then that will be enough. We shouldn't be having any kids. Now, even those who aren't worried about the environmental aspect of things sometimes wonder if having kids in an evil world is a good idea. Listen, on the individual level, the answer is you should only get married and have kids if that's what God wants you to do. God leads some people to celibacy. We saw this on Sunday in our studies through the Revelation. But even not in the tribulation, Paul said, hey, you know, based off of what's going on with persecution and those sorts of things in this place, it's probably better for you not to get married at this point. But if you do, that's okay. So on the individual level, should I have kids? The answer is get married and have kids if that's what God leads you to do, whether the world is good or bad. On a philosophical level, consider this. God gave Adam and Eve this command about being fruitful and multiplying, knowing just how bad the world was going to be in a pretty short amount of time. After all, these were the two people who would bring sin and death into the world. But of course, God has sufficient grace and power and victory for our families, no matter how good or bad the world is. 
And so the question is not, well, should I philosophically have kids because the world is evil? The world's always been evil, you know, except for this very short time that we're reading about right now. And God has overcome the world, so be of good cheer. So the bigger question is, what does God want for my life? That's always the question that we need to be asking. Lord, what do you want me to do as an individual servant of yours? Do you want me to be married? If I'm not married, do you want me to be married? If I am married, he wants you to stay married. If you don't have kids, ask the Lord if he wants you to have kids. If you want to have kids and you're unable, then trust the Lord and, and you know, seek him and, and allow him to minister to you. And so that's a question that comes up and that's our answer for it. Verse 29 says, God also said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed, they will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. I often think of Adam and Eve in the confines of the Garden of Eden, but here we see that God intended for them and their offspring to reach every corner of the globe, right? The entire surface of the earth, he says. As they spread, they'd be sharing things with the animal kingdom. And it sort of made me wonder, I wonder if all of the animals were friendly. It's clear here that there, there, was no, uh, there were no carnivores at this point. Everybody's a, a vegetarian or a fruitarian, okay? But... There's all sorts of animals, birds and fish and reptiles and dinosaurs and mammals and those sorts of things. And I wonder if they were all friendly, if they were all cooperative, or if, you know, there was going to be some, some turf negotiations that they would have to work on. But think about it. I think sometimes I think when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, that all they do is walk around eating bananas and having nothing to do. And the picture we're getting here is of an immense amount of work and administration, subdue and rule and, and, and do this work, right? Spread this garden all over the earth, deal with the, the creation as it's been created, harness it and develop it and study it and, and do all of these different things. We only get sort of clues about what life was like for Adam and Eve and the animals. Uh, and even though animals at this point were not eating each other and weren't afraid of humans and weren't doing battle with one another, humans would still have to rule and subdue and take charge of the administration of the planet. God told them to. It seems as if animals were able to communicate with man, although that's a bit of speculation. At any rate, the job God was giving them was not just a walk in the park. This was an immense undertaking that would require a whole lot of effort and work and dedication and devotion. But notice there in verse 29 how God says, look. You know, he has this moment of, of what we would call excitement to have his special creatures check everything out. Check it out. Look what I made. Look at this plant. Look at this tree. Look at everything around you. Remember on the Lion King? Simba, everything the light touches is your kingdom, right? And we're like, that's so cool, right? What about over there? Don't go over there. He goes anyway. Hey, this is an Adam and Eve story. Lion King, who knew? But, you know, the Lord calls him out and he says, hey, take a look. Take a look at everything. This is all yours. And I have a wonderful plan and desire and intention for you as you live your lives. He invited them to check it all out and to study and to discover and wonder at this glorious creation. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. 
At the end of the work week, things were not only good, they were very good. Creation was humming along in worshipful harmony. This reminds us of how things will be one day in the future. When God establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth, the world will be restored. The creation will harmonize again as Christ undoes the effects of sin once and for all. And what a wonderful time that will be. This also reminds us that the things God establishes are very good. He says, hey, he looked at what he had made and it was very good. Everything that God establishes is very good. He established creation. It's good. It's ruined in many ways uh, for the time being, but it is good according to what God has made, right? Mountains are good. The, 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 the beauty of the heavens is good. Uh, th- these things are very good, albeit uh, sullied by our sin. But what else has God established? Well, God has established institutions of family and the church. These are very good things indeed when they are enjoyed and implemented according to God's specific design. He has given us these things for our good so that we might thrive and grow and carry out our functions in this world. Genesis 2 verse 1, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. God completed his creation, but he wasn't done working. After his day of rest, a new effort would begin, his work in the lives of man and woman. All the creative work so far led up to this new phase where he would now be able to commune with his people, walking with them and talking with them and directing them and helping them. God would have to. He would have to work with the people of earth to assist them. After all, God had given mankind dominion over the whole earth, specifically including the realms which human beings can't live in the sea and in the sky. He says, you're in charge of everything that's going on in the ocean. You're in charge of all the animals going on in the sky. You're going to administrate all of that. If I'm Adam, I'd say, yeah, I don't do so well breathing underwater. I don't do so well, you know, with this gravity thing. How am I, how are we going to do this? And of course, the answer is because God was going to assist them and walk with them and participate with them. What's the invitation Jesus gives us? Does he say, go out there and I'm going to watch from a far tower and I'm going to watch you do work. And if you, you know, slack off even a little bit, that thunderbolt's coming. No, he says, why don't you take my yoke upon you? We'll yoke together and we'll go together and accomplish this work. That's his heart. That's the way he likes to interact and commune with his people. And we see right after the fall, right? What does God do? He comes to the garden to walk with them in the cool of the day. And so his creative work in the week of creation was, was complete, but God wasn't done expending effort in, you know, obviously God cannot get tired. He doesn't grow weary or anything like that, but God was going to still be very involved with what was going on on the earth. That was the whole point, that he could have these special creatures with whom he could commune with and spend time with and communicate with and reveal himself to and, and do wonderful things through their lives. And so his creative work in that sense was done, but he was still going to be performing all sorts of work along with human beings. Twice, God had told Adam and Eve that they'll be in charge of everything. 
everything in the sky, everything in the sea, everything on the earth, this job would be impossible without God's help and his empowering. So God wasn't retiring. Jesus said in John chapter five, my father is still working, he's always at work, and so am I. Now the question that rises here is what relationship we as Christians should have with a Sabbath day of rest. Some suggest that since God's day of rest predates the law of Moses, therefore it should still apply to Christians. For example, the law um, says you shall not murder, but that wasn't a new idea when Moses said it or when the, it was written on the Ten Commandments. All the way back, you know, when the first murder happens, like, you know, with the first two descendants of Adam and Eve, God says, yeah, that's a problem. We can't be doing that. And then when Noah comes out of the ark, he says, hey, if you shed man's blood by man, your blood shall be shed. And so people say, well, there you go. To not murder people is a moral constant no matter what era you're in. And that's true. Well, is the same true about a day of Sabbath rest? Didn't God rest on the seventh day? Therefore, shouldn't we all copy him and rest on the seventh day? This issue has been specifically plainly dealt with in the New Testament. Jesus said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Paul wrote, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. In Romans, he said, every, some say every day is the same. Some, day, some say one day is better than another day. Both are right. Neither one are wrong. During the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when the church was about to be split over the issue of keeping the Levitical law or not, the answer was that Christians do not have to keep it and there was nothing about the Sabbath whatsoever, nothing prescribed. Rather, we see in Acts that the Christians at certain times met every single day to enjoy the presence of God. And we see in the New Testament that Jesus offers us his rest, not once a week, but moment by moment. We're able to enter into it by the power of his spirit anytime. He says, come to me and I will give you my rest. And so we find God's rest, not in a list of what we do not do on a certain day, but by entering into what Jesus freely offers every single day as we commune with him. Now, listen, if you feel led to mark a specific day of the week with certain acts of restful worship and devotion, that is fine, that is great. You are allowed that liberty in Christ. However, we are not allowed to then force that upon other Christians. We simply aren't. It's very plain, very clear. So if the Lord is leading you and tugging on your heart to have a spiritual day of rest, not based upon rules that you put on yourself in order to show how holy you are, but based upon a, a devoted, peace-filled time of worship, great, go for it. Don't allow it to trap you in legalism. But you can't turn around and then say, and so every other Christian has to do the same thing. Now, before moving to our close, there's something tucked away here for us to take a quick note of. You've probably heard before that in the Bible, seven is the number of completion or perfection. Uh, that idea is most definitely woven throughout the scriptures in lots of ways and in lots of circumstances. Seven is a very significant number, biblically speaking. This is the first use of the number seven in God's word. And we always wanna pay special attention to the first mention of a doctrine. This is where the idea gets its origin. Why is a week seven days instead of three or 10 or some other arbitrary number? It's because God says so. And because as he reveals himself, the number seven would have a very important, very significant place. 
And so here it is used for the first time and connected to the idea of perfect completion. So if you ever heard seven is the number of completion, you think, where's that coming from? Well, it originates all the way back in the book of Genesis where that seed is planted in our minds. And then it is revealed as we go through the rest of scripture and God uses this special number in lots of special ways. Verse four begins this way. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Hold their Verse four is an unfortunate split up uh, when they went and added chapter and verse to the Bible. This phrase, the records of the heavens and the earth, is a specific one. If we were Hebrew scholars, we would find that 10 times in the book of Genesis, we're going to encounter a specific type of statement about records of a certain lineage. Your translation may say history or generations or account. It's a specific Hebrew term, toledoth, right? That helps us divide up the book. It happens 10 different times. In each case, except this one, it refers to people. These, this is the generations of Adam. This is the generations of Jacob. This is the generations of Abraham. So be on the look for that. But here we have the first division of the book, the lineage of creation. Now, from this point forward, the focus will be on God's special creation, humanity. The story will focus on people, their families, and the things that happen in their lives and how God interacted with them. So now God's special agents have been placed on the earth to be in charge of administrating things God's way. Of course, we know everything goes sideways. And for thousands of years, God has been working tirelessly to fix what we humans broke. And we look forward to that day when it's finally done, when the, when the job is all fixed up and God makes all things new. But for here, for us here tonight, how might this passage give us direction? Of course, we believe this to be a historical record, and it is, but it's also meant to lead us into life and godliness. First, a text like this should cause us to appreciate what the Lord has done for us, thinking about creation and how it's all been made so that we might know God and, and see his love for us and see his intentions for us and then fulfill this incredible function that he has for us, that should fill us with gladness. But not only should we appreciate creation in the sense of being thankful for it, but also just appreciate it in the sense that we gaze at it in wonder. A lot uh, uh, has been spoiled by sin, as I said, but so much beauty remains. You know, we say stop and smell the roses, but honestly, stop and take a look at God's amazing creation, all made so that you might know him and know how much he loves you. God still invites us to look and check it out and explore what he has given and consider the wonder of his design. Second, this passage should cause us to anticipate the coming age when things will be restored to what they were designed to be. God is going to put everything back together and he's going to let us live in that perfect restoration where we will dwell in peaceful rest and comfort. And those passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah and elsewhere that talks about what it's gonna be like in the millennial kingdom, oh, they're so exciting. When we look around and we see the brokenness and the violence and the ruin and the destruction and the waste in the world around us and God says, I'm gonna take care of all of that. I'm gonna make all of those things new. The world is gonna be put back into the condition that it should have been and the condition that it was before the fall. And so we should anticipate that. Third, this passage should cause us to acknowledge who we are in the eyes of God. You are not a mistake. Even if you have the kind of family or parents who either jokingly or cruelly say, you were a mistake, you were a surprise. 
That may be true on some human level, but you are not a mistake. God looks at you and he says, oh, no, 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 no. Before the foundation of the earth, I knew you. I knew all the days of your life, everything you'd ever think, everything you'd ever do, all, the, all of who you are on the deepest level, and I love you. And he, and he goes one more than that. You are not a mistake. You're not just a bundle of nerves and carbon. You are also a special creation of incalculable value. It's not just that God did a special thing making Adam and Eve and that the rest of us are just sort of part of the human swarm, right? That's not what's going on. No, we're told that God still does a, what we might call a special work of creation in the case of each human life, that he knows us before we're born, that he fashions us in our mother's womb himself. He knits us together, the Bible says. You are made on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose leads us to our fourth point of application, accept the assignments God has given you. What is your purpose in God's eyes? He wants you to discover it. He wants you to find it out. He wants you to walk in those things. He invites you to come and get to know him so that he can reveal those things to you. Accept those assignments. Now, Adam and Eve had this amazing assignment to have dominion over the whole world and subdue it and all of that. And what did they do? They gave over their office and their position to Satan. They said, you can have dominion over this world. And they chose sin instead. Now, even though that has happened and the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, right now we still are able to function in certain aspects of that original human office, right? You still are able to develop the world, cultivate it, plant something and let it grow, to harness the creation in order to glorify God and in order to do good things. And we should still f live our lives in a way that represents God to the world around us. After all, we are the image of God. We are made in his image. But on this side of the fall and on this side of the cross, we've been given an additional assignment now. Adam and Eve had a specific assignment. We have an additional, a different assignment. Not to just go through the world and multiply biologically or to plant more trees although those are good things, but to go spreading the gospel and making disciples. He says, hey, this is your commission now. Adam and Eve had their own thing going. They gave that up, gave it to Satan. Back then, everyone knew God intimately, right? He was talking to them person to person. Now we live in a fallen world where there's separation from God and God wants to reconcile people. And so he says, okay, this is your assignment now. As you're going through the world, Sure, you, you know, the Lord invites us to have families and plant things and multiply and be full of joy and enjoy creation. He says, but also your commission is now to go through and fill the world, not just with plants and growth, but to fill the world with the gospel and make disciples in all places. Like Adam and Eve's job of planet administration, this assignment God has given us is impossible without the empowering and the enabling of God himself. We have to walk with him and receive from him so that we can do the job he's given us to do. But he has given everything that we need so that we can do it effectively. And so our aim should be to live in blessed obedience to him. And in that way, we fulfill our special place in God's plan and receive the special blessings set aside for us and only for us, his special agents in charge of certain uh, aspects of his work here on the earth.